0: Great to be with you guys this morning. Glad that you're here and glad that you're um, tuning in. I know for me, when I was back in high school, I think I had a little bit of a lazy brain because whenever I was studying something that I didn't think was going to be something I'd use for the long run, it was really hard to study. And one of the joys I have right now is whenever I see my boys who are in high school, I see them studying something that I know is something that they may not appreciate it, but it's something they're going to use forever. Like, I will tell them, okay, that is something you're going to use forever. Make sure you learn it well. Today, we are taking up a topic that's like that, because the topic we're taking up today is one that, as a Christ follower, you will use for your entire life, but even more than that, as a Christ follower, it's one we believe you will use forever. We're talking today about worship. So it's immensely practical with what we're gonna do do with it. We're doing this as part of a sermon series we've been doing for these number of weeks. And if you haven't been with us, I encourage you to go check out the sermons on the media um, resources we have online. But where we've been, we started week one, just talking about what is discipleship? What's it look like? One of the definitions that I kind of settled in on was talking about how discipleship is helping somebody to learn or teaching them what it is to think, And feel and act like a Christian. And then we went on from there that same time to talk about, maybe just to begin to think about, what does a mature Christian look like? If your goal is to keep growing and to get to a place, I mean, it's a lifelong journey, it never ends. But if you're trying to get to a place where you're a mature Christian, what's it look like? We talked about that. And then we started taking on the topics. We talked about scripture. We talked about a sermon about what service looks like. And then last week we talked about spiritual practices. Today, we're talking about worship, something that's going to go on forever. And as we start looking at this, one of the first questions I would ask us to sort of ponder for a moment is, are we wired for worship? Is that like a permanent thing? Like where we're, we're always looking like there's something about us, the way we're built, that's going to worship. I think about that today with the first reading that we had a few moments ago, because God's people leave Egypt, and they're heading off on this journey, and they get to a place where they're frustrated. Moses has um, gone up on the mountain and all this, and they get to their they're frustrated. They're going to worship something. They lean on Aaron to say, we need something to worship, and sadly, Aaron helps them as they make the golden calf and all this, and they, they go off worshiping something, right? The question is, that something that just happened, where they just sinful, wrong, went that way, or was it there's just always something in us that wants to worship, I don't know about you, but every year as we come around to sort of May and all these commencement exercises start, I love watching some of the different commencement speeches that take place and some of the different wisdom that people put out. One of the ones that went viral a number of years ago that still sticks with me is uh, came from an English professor, creative writer, who was known for his writing in both novels and short stories. And um, he's a person that Time Magazine said in the last 80-something years, he wrote one of the top 100 um, works in his book, Infinite Jest, David Foster Wallace. And he gave this commencement address at Kenyon College. And I love the things he said. I really do. And this is a bit of a long quote, and I wanted to cut it down, but I just love it. So I just want you to hear what he said. And I don't think he's, he's not speaking from a Christian perspective as such, but this is part of what he said to the students at that address. Um, He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that everything else will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. If you worship your own body, beauty, and sexual lure, you will always feel ugly. And when the time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep fear at bay. Worship intellect, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. This idea that maybe that's how we're wired. We're always going to put something there. But for us as Christians, for people who've said, I want to be a disciple, I want to learn Jesus' teachings, his rhythms of grace, and I want to grow, worship of God is going to be something we're going to do forever. And we see glimpses of that in Scripture, right? Because you go to the book of Revelation, in Revelation 4, and you get to see some of one of the accounts of some worship taking place in heaven right that's the scene you may remember that we read where it, there are these 24 thrones that are around the main throne and it's the 24 cuts in half and it's symbolic of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles and you've got these elders in their white robes with their crowns sitting on these thrones and they get to the place where the worship starts and they take off their crowns and they throw them before the eternal and then they well up in worship as they say, You are worthy, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. They just, they're just they sitting in heaven just throwing out this kind of worship. And it's a reminder, again, as I say, we're going to worship forever. And one of the things I wonder about and think about sometimes is if worship is going to take place forever in heaven, that's a piece of it. What is that going to look like? And I, I just imagine all the variety we already have in the world today around worship. But what is all the worship in heaven going to look like? All the different, maybe millions and millions and millions or perhaps infinite ways to worship God. There's a saying I love that says that there are not too many ways to worship God. That's one of the reasons why I love that we have so many ways to worship here, that we do traditional, we, we do contemporary, we do compliment, we do all these different ways to get an idea that there are different ways to worship God. And I'm convinced, of course, I always joke about it, but I, I mean, the first thousand years are gonna be Korean contemporary. So just, if you're not ready for it, be ready. That's what we're gonna have. Biggest church in the world, right? Um, single church, anyway. But this idea that there are all these ways. And I think for us, it raises the question pretty fast. Okay, if, there, if we're talking about all this variety, well, what is worship? What's the definition of it? How do we talk about it? What is it? And I want to go back to one of the definitions that was used when I was in seminary. This is um, back to this spiritual writer um, and activist, really, Evelyn Underhill. She says, Worship in all its grades and kinds is the response of the creature to the eternal. There's a sense in which we may think of the whole life of the universe, seen and unseen, conscious and unconscious, as an act of worship, glorifying its origin and sustainer in the end. And it reminds me of, if you've ever read that outline of faith in the back of the Book of Common Prayer, the Catechism, it's got this one place that talks about why do we praise God? And the answer given back in the Book of Common Prayer is that we praise God, not because we we can get something from Him, but because His divinity draws it out of us. When we realize that we're the created, we realize what he's done, our response back is one of worship and praise and giving God glory that way. And then if we want to continue to sort of d- drill down a bit, asking what is this? Okay, let's understand worship a bit more. How is worship used in the New Testament? There are a number of different ways it's used, but I'm going to give you the top three Greek verbs that are used for worship and just to get you to think for a moment about those. The first one and the biggest one is proscunio, which is used 59 times. And it's this idea of um, kneeling, it's engaging in prostrating yourself before God. It's this idea of, um, sometimes people will say, talk about kissing the ground before God, so to speak, to kiss the ground. And there are scholars who say the word itself comes from this idea of uh, the way a dog shows affection to a master, licking his hand and doing different things. But it's this idea that it's a physical um, reverence that way. And um, a second term that gets used is mahi, which is used 10 times. It means to reverence or to hold in awe. And the final word is used 21 times. It's latruyo, which means to serve homage, to do religious service. And I think when we start taking all those words and bringing them into English, the word that we ended up using, right, with worship, means to give value, to give worth to. I mean, it means it literally means worth-ship. I mean, it means to, to give worth. And our Christian worship takes all of that and begins to put them all together, right? Because there's aspects of our kneeling and our physical worship, our kneeling in our hearts, so to speak. And there's an aspect of reverence and holding up the awe and the glory of God. And there's these acts and, and parts of our homage that we pay. right? And there are lots of different things. And we think about, so those are the kind of our thoughts about what it is. What does it look like? How does it play out? And I wanna just give some characteristics and some thoughts to think about on it. The first of which is to think about um, just some of the characteristics. It's something that we do in beauty and truth everywhere and anywhere, right? And you remember this goes back to this um, passage that takes place in John, in John 4, where Jesus encounters the, um, the Samaritan woman and they're having this conversation and she's kind of gets to a place where she wants to kind of drive a wedge, I think between her and Jesus because the way the conversation's going and she says, yeah, well, we worship here and y'all, you guys worship in Jerusalem. And so, yeah, we kind of got this different. And Jesus comes back and says, yeah, the day's coming when it's not going to matter where you worship. And that's where we live today. It doesn't matter where you worship. And he goes on to say, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. It's from anywhere and everywhere And the the other thing about it for us is, as you talk about these characteristics of it, this is something we oftentimes, I think, many of us can get sidetracked on, right? Because when you talk about worship, worship is God-centered. And there's really ultimately only an audience of one. And sometimes we don't live it that way because sometimes we'll say, "What, what did I get out of worship today? Or how was the music? You know, and... Did they do something new, or did, was it was it worth it to me for what what I got out of it? As if we're the audience seeking to be pleased. And I think the deeper we go, which is, I should pause there and say, that's okay if that's where we are. We certainly do everything we can behind the scenes to have the best preaching and the best music, and the, I mean, we we devote tons of resources and energy to that place, and we want people to show up and to receive and say, oh, man, that was great and worth it. But at the end of the day, as we mature, I think we come to this place where we realize, yeah, it's I'm not the audience. God's the audience. We're all here in the public work of liturgy to participate in that before God and to be a part of that and to be a piece of that with what we're doing. And it draws us to that place. And all the worship we do begins to put all these different pieces together where we're gonna adore God. Hold him in reverence. We're going to kneel. We're going to do all this. And it's also going to involve receiving from God. It is. We're going to read scripture. We're going to do different things and talk about things and be formed. So it's going to be all these things put together. As we think about what that worship looks like, I want to to look at one more thing with respect to what it looks like. If you go to the Bible and you say, I want to turn to like the worship part of the Bible, the place you would go to first probably is the book of Psalms because that is like a, a worship book within the Bible. And it'll teach you how to pray in ways you don't pray with emotion and real realness and authentic, authentic, being authentic and all these different kinds of things that you'll do in reading the Psalms. But when you read the Psalms, you'll see there are largely two categories of Psalms. There are Psalms that are corporate and that's something we do together, we worship together. And there are Psalms that are individual ones, right? And so we get that worship involves corporate worship and it involves individual worship at times, right? And you can think of lots of different examples. If you do morning prayer out of the book of common prayer, one of the psalms that gets featured very prominently is Psalm 95. It has its own name. I'm not good at saying Latin. Veniti, is that he say? Veniti. Thank you for correcting me, Chris. Veniti. But um, but it's this it's this great psalm that you can get a flavor for it. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us heartily rejoice in the strength of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and show ourselves glad in him as psalms. For the Lord's a great God and a great king above all kings. In his hand are all the corners of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his and he made it. And his hands prepared the dry land. O come, let us worship, fall down, kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is the Lord our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. And it goes on from there. But it's this great, passionate, we're together worshiping God. And then we think about probably the most well-known Psalm in Psalm 23, and we talk about the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It's all written from the first person. So we get that worship involves both of these. It's the corporate, and Jesus says where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. So we have a huge priority on corporate worship. But we also have individual worship. It's both of these that we build into our days. And I would say there's even another um, branch of worship where where sort of everything you do in life, if it's committed to God, becomes an act of worship. And you can think about how Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And I got to tell you, this is a whole nother sermon. I may go there yet someday, soon. But that to me even means our voting. Vote to the glory of God. Like whatever you want to do, I'm not getting into anything controversial. I'm just saying whatever you do, everything you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Be thinking about his kingdom. Be praying what he wants. All these kinds of things to engage. So our Christian worship is all of that. The final thing I want to look at may sound like an odd thing because as the prayer book says, you know, we don't praise God to get something out of it. And there's an audience of one that we do. But I wanna spend just a moment talking about what we do receive as we worship. Because I think there's a whole lot that takes place with us as we worship. One of the things is, as we worship week by week, I think it grounds us and it helps us be humble with whatever's going on, it helps us in that. And I think there's a real sense in which it, it helps us reset and reorient. I think of it as like if you've ever pulled out your um, your iPhone, if you have one, and you're using the compass, and you haven't used it in a while, and it brings up that little ring, and you've got to turn it around and do all this. To me, that worship is like that each week. It's kind of getting our bearings back. And part of what it does is brings us back to a perspective of the eternal, and puts all of our problems in perspective. It makes us see God as a creator. It just gives us a reset on all of this. I read a, a passage, I think it's from one of Billy Graham's uh, daughters, who talked about how worship and worry don't fit very well in the same heart. And it, the more we worship, it will push out worry. And I think that's one of the reasons why when Paul is talking to the Philippians about anxiety in chapter four, and we've done that throughout this COVID stuff, we've cited this verse a number of times, but we, we, where he says, don't be anxious about anything, but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. He's basically calling them to worship. I think he, instead of saying prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, he could have said worship because I think that when we double down in that worship, it's going to push that anxiety and that fear out of our hearts. And the, the other thing I think it does for us is something we talked about last year. When Paul, in that same passage, or in the, in the Vanity, as we said a few minutes ago, um, calls us to giving thanks to God, when we do that habitually in corporate worship and in our individual worship day by day, we will formulate hearts of gratitude. And that will have a phenomenal effect on us. They have done loads of studies, medical studies, about all the benefits that come from living with gratitude. Your blood pressure, your psychological makeup, all these different things hugely impacted by it, right? And if you wanna see, if you haven't seen this, one of the TED Talks out there on the web that I love is by this Benedictine monk, David Stendhal Rast. He gives this talk, he runs like this gratitude center. But one of the things he says, his main thesis he gives in this TED Talk is that sometimes people think that you need to be happy so you can give thanks. And he says, it's actually the other way around. If you can learn to be grateful, you will be happy. That's to me, one of the benefits that comes out of worship. So I want to leave you with um, some, some thoughts and challenges about how you might incorporate this in your everyday life. Last week, we talked spiritual practices, but in your own prayer life each day, apart from corporate worship, incorporate... Worship in your individual prayer life, right? And maybe an easy way to do this, one I've always used is acts, just the, the mnemonic acts. So start with adoration, adoring God. You're great. You're worthy of praise and honor. You, by your will, everything was created and has its being. All those kinds of things, just adoring God. The C is for confession, admitting in our brokenness. The T is for thanks, gratitude, giving thanks. And the S is for supplication, finally getting to your list of all those things we want to pray for. Incorporate acts once a day somewhere in your prayer life, in the morning, in the evening. You're called to be a Christ follower. As we do that, we're going to worship forever. We should start practicing it best we can now. It'll change us and it'll help us to live into God's purposes. Amen.